Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in the text today, and uh, I've told you there are a few more themes to unfold, and we'll do that as we make our way through the narrative. But what you have in the first 25 verses of Luke's Gospel is the extraordinary birth announcement of the forerunner. The birth announcement of the one who would come before Christ. Now, when Jesus Christ returns in glory and judges the world, unbelievers, all unbelievers, everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ will have a lot to answer for and a lot of people in the past to whom they must answer. Clearly, Jesus Christ will be the judge, but there will be testifiers and witnesses against them, one of whom is the person about which this passage speaks, the forerunner himself. Unbelievers are going to have to answer to the witness of the forerunner, because it is in this person, this forerunner to Christ, John the Baptist, that a preparation was made for the arrival of our Redeemer. A testimony was made of the arrival of the Savior. And if you miss it, or you miss it because, as all unbelievers do, there is rebellion in the heart, you will have to answer to that one day. There will be no excuse for someone who did not hear of the forerunner. They could have had the light could have heard had they just softened their heart to all that creation itself had testified of, Romans 1 says. And then this account, which has, of course, <clears throat> gone all over the world, this wonderful story of the arrival of the forerunner. Now, we just have to pay attention to the context a little bit <clears throat> and, and look at a few things to set the scene here. First of all, what you notice in verses 5 to 7 is the noteworthy parents of the forerunner. This forerunner had some noteworthy parents. Notice verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, this was during a distinct time, of course, in the days of Herod. Herod, of course, was king at the time. We know that from some of the other Gospels as well. History tells us that he was, of course, a notoriously cruel ruler. He was paranoid. <clears throat> he was a rat of a man whose father, Antipater, had basically scratched Rome's political back for a while. And as a favor, Herod was allowed to rule his little empire. And Rome gave him a fairly decent army, and so he would use that power to intimidate the Jews into submitting to this cheaply acquired appointment as king. And so he did just that. He built his little empire on extortion, took huge amounts of taxes from the Jews. And when one of his brothers-in-law, Aristobulus, was gaining too much influence, he killed him. He murdered him. And then he killed his sister, who was one of Herod's wives. So Aristobulus was murdered for gaining too much influence. His sister was murdered, even though Herod had married her. 
He was paranoid always over the thought that one of his two sons would take his throne, and so he murdered both his sons to get rid of them. And, and because he knew everyone hated him, including <clears throat> the Jews, he, uh, he was so cruel that he knew no one would mourn his death, and so he had a bunch of high, notable individuals in society, hundreds of them. He had them arrested when he was nearing his death and imprisoned, and then it was agreed upon or he had ordered his soldiers then to kill them at the moment Herod died so that the city would mourn when he died. And Luke comes along and tells us that in the days of that king, Herod, king of Judea, there was this priest. The heritage of this priest is given to us in verse 5. His name was Zacharias. He was of the division of Abijah. The simplest way, by the way, to understand the division of Abijah is that the division itself was just a group of priests that had particular tasks that came up annually. A duty for a term of days. And Abijah, his division was the eighth of the 24 divisions when David, the king as it's written in 1 Chronicles 24, had divided the division of the priests and commissioned them to their particular tasks. Abijah was the eighth division out of 24. Now, after the exile, we don't have time to go back to it, but after the exile, only four of the original 24 divisions came back. And so those four were divided back into 24 divisions, and then the old names were applied to them. So in that sense, then, Zechariah wasn't, Zacharias wasn't a direct uh, he wasn't directly in the line of Abijah, but he was now officially under this second division, which also carried the name of Abijah. And he was selected to do the honor of offering incense. So other than high festivals times, the priestly families were performing their service at two separate weeks per year. It was a daily ritual at the temple, and it included, in this case, offering a morning and an evening sacrifice of incense. And so it was offered before the morning sacrifice and after the evening sacrifice. And there were about 18,000 priests at the time, so if you were in the selection process, which was by lot, if you were selected in your lifetime, you would do it only once. And many never had an opportunity to go into the holy place, just outside of the Holy of Holies, with the privilege of offering incense as a symbol of offering the prayers and petitions of God's people to God himself, which he would accept in the ritual it was, it were it done according to specification. So this is a high honor to be chosen. This is the pinnacle of a priest's spiritual service. And while, as I said last time, there was a bit of a routine for those who had already just gotten bound up in the externals, and there was no passion in it, no heart of it, that certainly wasn't true for Zacharias. He was no ordinary priest, and this was no ordinary day. For him, this was no lifeless routine. When he was selected by lot to participate in this custom, verse 9 says, you can imagine that for Zacharias, who was waiting for Messiah, and uh, he was a devout, righteous Jew, practicing the law, this would have been an immense privilege. And remember, he's, in, he's older in years, it says, according to, um, according to verse 7. They were both advanced in years. That phrase, by the way, is associated with 
in, in uh, Jewish history associated with someone being about 60 years or older. So he's, he's never had an opportunity to do this. He's never gone into the holy place to do this and offer the prayers. He's never been selected. This is his one and only opportunity. It's later in life. When he was selected by Lot, his heart was pounding. This is a great privilege. And he would have prepared meticulously, paying attention to the details, keeping his heart in the right place and trained on the honor and exaltation of God. He would have wanted his service before the Lord to be pleasing to the living God. And he would have indeed sensed some special providence that would allow him at this later time in life to be one who is chosen. Prayer, by the way, is a wonderful theme that Luke continues to draw out just as we're talking themes. Psalm 141, verse 2, I read it. May the prayers that rise up to you, O God, be, be like the offering of incense. May they be acceptable to you, was the idea that the psalmist had in mind. The people would pray during the offering, and they'd ask God to be merciful, and they knew if it was handled right by the one in there that did it properly, then it would be received. The word for prayer, by the way, proskuamai, Luke uses it 19 times in this gospel, and he uses it 16 times in the book of Acts. And so it's noteworthy that Luke likes to highlight when prayer happened, and in fact, in the providence of God, he highlights times when prayer occurred at the visitation of the supernatural. For example, at Jesus' baptism, Luke 3.21, God's voice was heard. And there were prayers that were offered. At the Mount of Transfiguration, there was prayer offered in Luke 9.28. And there was a divine manifestation. So prayer and the, the, the bringing together of that with divine manifestations. Jesus in the garden, when he struggled, he was strengthened by an angel from heaven. Luke 22.43. Luke mentions that specifically. In Acts 9, verse 40, Peter raised a woman named Tabitha, and there were serious prayers being offered to God on behalf of that. seems that Luke liked the idea that God's people prayed and wonderful things happened. The altar of incense, by the way, when you went through the, into the inter part, inner part of the temple, you came into the holy place just outside of the Holy of Holies, the altar of incense was there in the center, and it was up next to the big veil that hung down. And on, if you were looking at the altar, to the right side was the table with the shoe bread on it. And uh, on the left side, if you looked at it this way, it'd be to the right of the altar if you were looking from it. But looking at the altar to the left side there was the golden candlestick. And it was lit. And then in the center there was this altar of incense. And that's where Zacharias would be performing his duty. God's providence, by the way, is all over this circumstance. If you just think about it, Zacharias, the name itself, means the Lord has remembered. So he chose Zacharias at this particular time, being the priest whose heart is right, coming in to offer the incense at this particular time that God is going to begin to move. His wife is a daughter of Aaron, so she's a daughter of the line of the priests. And so this is a double honor, a double distinction. Her name means my God is an oath. So you have this couple, this wonderful couple. Zacharias has chosen. The Lord has remembered. He has kept his oath. That's essentially the, the names of these two. They were popular names, but wonderful providence from God. 
And their character, verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God. They weren't just externalists. Notice, in the sight of God. That is to say, they were more than mere outside. God knew their heart. And so they walked blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. It was the habit of their lives to pay careful attention to their daily walk. And God says in His sight, through Luke, He says in His sight, they were righteous. They're not sinless, but they kept their heart and life honest and diligent before the Lord. They had a clean conscience. They had a passion to serve God in reverence. And although they were righteous, and although they had double distinction and honor, and although in providence of God he was chosen to offer the incense, and although this is a heart-pounding, momentous time for him, they had a need. Verse 7, something that had been on their prayer list for a long time. They had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And every time they prayed. <laughs> and now they're probably thinking, you get to offer the incense? Yeah, I know you can't pray just for yourself in there, but maybe this time when we offer the prayer. But it's hopeless anyway. We're advanced in years. That time is past. She was barren. Notice verse 25 what she says after she is pregnant. Verse 25, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. That's how women saw it. From ancient times, passed down through the generations, to be childless was a reproach. Many believed it to be a sign of punishment because Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, those twin psalms about the blessing of family life, women were to flourish under the blessing of God as the husband and the family feared God. And Psalm 127, they're a blessing to the Lord, a gift from the Lord. Children are blessed as the man whose quiver is full of them. They'd probably resigned to the reality for years that she would always be childless. The parallel here, by the way, with Abraham and Sarah could not have been missed by the original readers. It's, it's exactly what comes to our mind. The patriarch Abraham, Sarah is without child, a promise made. Here you have no promise made, but you do have a priest who understands all those things and Certainly they must have thought about the patriarch and matriarch of Israel for so many years as they prayed, and yet still, they had a need, a distinct need. Though they were noteworthy parents, everyone would have thought they, certainly, of all people, would have had a child. They were childless. This was difficult. This was burdensome. This was, for Elizabeth, though godly, this was a scandalous disgrace in her life. The forerunner's noteworthy parents. Verse 8, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude, notice, of the people were in prayer outside of, at the hour of the incense offering. So, basically, Zacharias would have chosen two, two assistants, as tradition tells us. 
And the first assistant would go in, assistant would go in and, and remove the old ash sort of laden coals off the altar and then would pray and back out. And the second would come in with the new live coals burning and put them there and then would pray and then back away, Jewish historians tell us. And then Zacharias would come in, and so now he comes into the holy place, and he's standing alone, and he's still on the outside of that large veil, which he cannot go beyond, because that's the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in front of him is that altar of incense with the coals, and looking at the altar to his right is the showbread, and to the left is the golden candlestick. And it is glowing. And there he is quietly in that place. And outside are a a group of people, a throng of people in the court of Israel. The whole multitude of people in prayer, verse 10 says. Immediate family members, extended family members, fellow priests, a huge group of faithful worshipers, and a host of others who would have known Zacharias and Elizabeth for years and knew that he'd never had the privilege. And when he got the privilege, no doubt they sent news around. This is... This is my opportunity to serve the Lord in this unique way. So they were outside kneeling and tradition says they would lie prostrate and they were fervently worshiping and praying and they thanked God for His faithfulness and for the fulfillment of His promises and for acceptance of their worship. And they would have times of silence. And Alfred Edersheim says this about what happens next. He says, Zacharias waited until he saw the incense kindling and the incense going up, and then he also would have bowed down in worship. And he would have reverently withdrawn had not a wondrous sight arrested his steps. And you go from the forerunner's noteworthy parents to his supernatural herald. His supernatural herald. Notice verse 11, And the angel or an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. The supernatural herald arrived during worship and he stood in a place of honor. Verse 11 says he stood to the right of the altar of incense. This was a symbolic place. So as Zacharias is looking at the altar, he's right there between the altar of incense and the golden candlestick, probably three or four feet away, just near the curtain. The other day I was coming into the building here on a, I believe it was a Friday morning, it was pitch dark out, or maybe it was a Monday morning, it was pitch dark still. Uh, and uh, I came up to the office door out here to open it, and I was, it was all dark, so I couldn't see anything. And so I just sort of felt my way with the key. And right here, about four feet away, I noticed a dark hooded silhouette. Someone was standing there. And uh, my heart started to pound. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to throw down here. I'm the pastor, and I'm going to have to have a fight right here. And uh, I said, hello. (laughs) And uh, the individual obviously was not in his right mind and mumbled a few things. And to my great astonishment, just spun around in a 180 and stood there and leaned against the wall. (laughs) And so I uh, quickly got in the building. (laughs) And then uh, went to talk to the guys to see if, you know, there was some way we could 
call someone for him. But, you know, I was reading this account, and I'm thinking, that's just a human being. Zechariah is standing here. He's in his older years. He's already overcome by the privilege and the honor of worshiping God at this particular service. And listen, he never would have ever in his lifetime dared to presume that there would be some sort of visitation in the temple of a supernatural kind. He would never dare to presume that. He would never dare to experience a heavenly vision, hear a divine voice out of the sky, or be appointed by God to some specially empowered task. He was too humble for that. In the only time he'd ever known of a divine visitation of some kind in the temple was some 800 to 1,000 years earlier when the Lord spoke to Samuel and appeared to him to judge Eli for not disciplining his wicked boys. And about 700 years earlier than this moment, Isaiah had his heavenly vision of the throne of God while in the, the, the vision of the temple. So he's not come... To worship in this way with any kind of preparation for this moment at all. Who is this? Well, verse 19 tells us. The angel spoke to him and said, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> I'm Gabriel. This is Gabriel. The Bible tells us that Gabriel is a strong angel. Probably what we refer to as an archangel. By the way, the New Testament never uses the definite article the with the term angel of the Lord. And that's because in the Old Testament, when it uses that term some 48 times, it always, with the definite article, refers to God himself coming prior to his incarnation, what we call a Christophany or an appearance of Christ prior to his incarnation, a pre-incarnate appearance of God himself called the angel of Jehovah or Yahweh. This here is an angel of the Lord and it's Gabriel. And he's just to the right of the altar, three or four feet away, in that place of honor, that place signifying power and authority and highest service. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for your feet. The right-hand place, the right side, always symbolized the place of significant, whether either delegated authority or actual authority, significant high service, honor, and power. And he's standing near the altar of incense. Isn't that significant? Because there the incense is rising up to heaven. It is symbolic of the prayers of God's people and what this angel is about to announce has to do with the prayers of Zacharias and Elizabeth, that they've reached the ears of God. What a place to show up. At the service of incense, with the symbol of prayers rising, and the angel shows up to tell Zacharias that his prayers have been heard. So... The supernatural herald of the forerunner is here. And he arrived during the worship service. He's standing there in all honor. In verse 12, what was the response? Well, it induced a panic. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. 
You know, for as broad and wide as our English language is, it's just silly, isn't it, the way we put words in there like that? If you, if you were to trace the terminology, it would be like exactly as when your adrenaline starts pumping. The first word means he was thrown into confusion. The second word means he was filled with terror. There it is. Thrown into chaotic confusion and terror. This isn't supposed to be happening, so he's in sudden confusion and fear is gripping him or terror is completely coming upon him is the way the word actually reads. So he is filled with fearful, terrorizing adrenaline and he's thrown into a state of confusion. Was this a judgment? Was he about to die? Did he do something wrong? Did he miss an important step? Did he dishonor God by disobeying? By the way, the text doesn't say what form Gabriel took. Um, whenever angels showed up, even in the accounts of the Gospels, they often uh, couldn't be looked at. There was so much pyrotechnic dynamic to, their, to the visual. Um, all it could be was described by humans as lightning and white as lightning and flashes and constant flashes and too bright to look at and they had glorious appearances. The text doesn't say here. All it says is that he appeared and Zacharias had the appropriate response. Obviously, he knew that he was seeing a divine being. Liberal scholars are also interesting to read. I don't spend a whole lot of time reading them, but they said that, well, he didn't really see an angel. Verse 11 the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and when he saw, fear gripped him. He only thought he saw an angel. Well, there are two reasons that can't be true. Two reasons. Number one, he claimed he saw a divine being, but then it is also true that he did not believe the message of the divine being. So that would be rather bizarre, wouldn't it? To run around claiming that you saw a divine being when you actually didn't, and then you turn around and say, but I didn't believe what he said to me. No one does that. People say they have visions of God, visions of angels all the time. You don't hear any of them say, oh, yeah, I saw it. But you know the message he spoke to me? Don't buy it. it. Makes no sense. So clearly he saw the angel. And second, the second reason that couldn't possibly be true that it was just an appearance was that he went mute. And he went mute for months, nearly a year. It wasn't until John was born that his mouth was opened. There's no explanation for being mute that long if he saw nothing, did nothing, made it all up. Sometimes angels look like lightning. Sometimes they just have no description, as is the case here. But I'm sure Gabriel didn't appear as anything that our eyes would perceive as dark or evil or harmful. We know that once an angel from God wanted to be recognized as from God, humans saw them as otherworldly or supernatural. There was a power about them and there was a revelation beyond the natural world that was instantaneously known. This is not some human who snuck in there. And the result is obvious. Panic. So this forerunner has some noteworthy parents and a supernatural herald. This is a whole new day, beloved. But then we come to the core of this account, and that is the forerunner's exalted calling. The forerunner's exalted calling. 
Verse 13, the angel said to him, and by the way, the angels are always saying this when they appear, do not be afraid. The parallel text when the angel announces to Mary what's going to happen, he says, do not be afraid. On the hillside with the shepherds, what did the angel say? Be not afraid. I love that. They care. (laughs) You're going to get the message wrong if you just don't come out of your confusion and terror. You're not going to get the message right, so... They have to say that. I appreciate that. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. In other words, you're not the wrong person here. I didn't visit the wrong person. I'm talking to you. For your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you will give him the name John. So what we first have here is the exalted calling was an answer of prayer, answer to prayer, to petition. And it's very specific. Your prayers, your petition about your wife's barrenness, and he names her Elizabeth, will have what you've always prayed for, a son. And not only that, you're going to name him John. I love that. The exalted calling of the forerunner was first an answer to prayer. How appropriate to have that come right at the incense bowl. How precious of God. More than that, he's an instrument set apart. Verses 14 and 15. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. That's a strange statement. You'll have joy and gladness. They get that. But many will rejoice at his birth. (laughs) I mean, what, cousins and friends? Hey, finally, Sarah's not barren, or uh, Elizabeth's not barren. No, it's more than that. Many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Verse 15. Because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So that is a special appointment service language. That is called out and set apart for special service. So he's not only a source of parental joy and fulfillment, but a spirit-empowered servant of God, great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. That's the vow. That's the Old Testament vow. He's set apart for a specific task. That was language reserved for someone who was going to spend their life in the service of Almighty God and be noted for it. Nazarite vow, the Vows that they made. This was a serious vow to sacrificial living. And notice another theme that pops up in Luke's Gospel. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He's going to preach under the power and influence of the Spirit of God. This is the dawn of something completely new here. Luke focuses on the Holy Spirit's work and records this incident because of that. By the way, he probably got these eyewitness accounts in all their detail because he's the only gospel writer that explains all these details. He's the only one that includes the birth announcement of John the Baptist and the circumstances surrounding his arrival. He probably got these details either... 
I mean, we don't know how long Mary lived. She might have, she was certainly there at the upper room. She was certainly there at the opening of the church on Pentecost. She might have been there at the choosing of the seven in Acts 6. She might have been one of the widows that was cared for when the Greek widows weren't cared for. She might have still been in the church there in Jerusalem. She may have traveled a bit early on to care for Peter and others to take care of those kinds of things in a few of their early travels. But in the choosing of the seven in Acts 6, Philip was one of the chosen ones. And later, when Luke is traveling with Paul, he comes back to Jerusalem. And guess who's there? Philip. Philip's in Caesarea, and Philip goes back and forth from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So he either got this testimony from Mary herself, or Luke sat down with Philip and said, tell me what, what was going on with Mary, how did she go off the scene, what did she say about what happened. Luke wanted all those details meticulously. Eyewitness testimonies. And so he would have longed to write down that John, the forerunner, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 41 of chapter 1. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her room and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 67 of chapter 1. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. The ministry of John the Baptist is characterized by special empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Back it says in verse 15. He's great in the sight of the Lord. He takes that vow of sacrificial service and he's filled while yet in his mother's womb. That's interesting. You have no, no examples in the scripture of infant conversions, obviously. But you do have prophetic anointing that goes on with John the Baptist here while in his mother's womb. Simeon is under the influence of the Spirit in chapter 2, verse 25. Verse 26 of chapter 2, Simeon had been given the revelation by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. You see, all of these events and Luke's recording of them for us highlight the new sort of eschatological dawn of the work of the Spirit of God, the intimate presence of God among His people. And they point to the fulfillment of what the ancients had promised, the role of the Holy Spirit in a special way in the end times. And of course, Mary hears something so remarkable in chapter 1, verse 35. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So Luke is emphasizing that God is near, intimately involved. This is the inauguration of the next great act of the unfolding drama of the redemption we have in Christ. This is God's unique power on display. And His presence is clearly evident. There's no mistaking that man is helpless unless God acts. And that God is personally bringing to pass these things by His power. And so he's an instrument set apart, this forerunner. And then notice, he is an ambassador of transformation. It's as an, he's come as an answer to prayer. He's an instrument set apart. And then verse 16 and verse 17 tell us what his ministry is going to be like. He's, a, he's an ambassador of transforming power. Verse 16 and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So first of all, he's a ministry that will elicit repentance. 
His ministry will elicit repentance. That's what's needed. Israel needed to repent. Israel needed to come back to God and honor God. And so when they see the Messiah come, they will know that that it is He that must die for their sins. They will see Isaiah 53 in a new way. That the servant must suffer for the iniquities of God's people. The forerunner would come and He would begin to speak repentance. That's so true. Do you know that when Christ comes in His second coming, He will not be without a witness calling unbelievers to repentance? How gracious is that? Read Revelation. Read the seven-year period of tribulation when all of these violent, very supernatural and majestic and marvelous and terrifying things are happening on the earth. And evil men are shaking their fist at God. What does God do? He provides two witnesses who can't be killed until they're finished witnessing of Christ. Then He provides an angel flying in heaven who's preaching the gospel, flying over the whole world, preaching the gospel to wicked men who are railing against God. He has the 144,000 Jews who are marked out for preaching the gospel to Israel, to the people on the earth during that time of judgment. And it's no different here with Christ's first coming. He's not without a forerunner. He's not without a witness. Someone whose ministry will elicit repentance. That's what John the Baptist did. He came and he he was marked out to turn the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Notice what his preaching will do. Verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he has the prophetic voice, the exhorting voice to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. That's a reference to Malachi 4 where the warning was that you have abandoned the generations. You've not taught the fear of God to the generations. And there will come one, one day, who will call you back to bring the families and generations the truth about God. Notice, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. It's going to induce righteousness. He's going to exhort and he's going to preach like a prophet. He's going to be the eschatological Elijah. He's going to come and when he preaches, he's going to preach repentance and you're going to be heartbroken over your sin when he preaches. And when he proclaims the truth, it's going to call you to see the standard of righteousness that you should have been seeing all along, but you've dumbed down in your disobedience. He's going to bring that back, call you to righteousness and holiness. Why? Verse 17, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When Christ comes, He's going to die. And He's going to be the one that when you repent, you can believe in and be forgiven. He's going to be the one that ratifies the new covenant so you can be forgiven of your sin. He's going to be the standard of righteousness. And He's going to be the righteous one whose righteousness can cover you by grace through faith. And He's the one that John the Baptist was trying to prepare you for, the text says. To make ready a people. What does that mean? Soften your hearts so that you see God's righteousness and you see your sin rightly. You know what it's like when you 
preach the gospel to people today or read them this account and say, hey, John the Baptist, you want to know who he was? He was a herald. He was a forerunner. And he came to call people to repentance. And he came to give the standard of righteousness what it was so that, so that generations would pass on the holy standard of righteousness to the next generation. You know what it's like when you preach the gospel to someone or you tell them the gospel. And what do they always say? I'm not a sinner. You know what I do? I just throw up a prayer. Lord, convict them of that. It is the Spirit of God when He comes it will convict the world of righteousness and judgment. Because Christ is no longer on the earth, but His righteous standard is upheld through the hearts and lives and transformation of His people and the righteous preaching of His Word. People say, I'm not a sinner. Well, I'm here to tell you, John the Baptist came as the forerunner to Christ to soften hearts, to prepare a way. It was an exalted calling. Well, he had to... The angel, unfortunately, had to forewarn the observers. The forerunner had some noteworthy parents. He certainly was a marvelous instrument set apart in his life by a supernatural being who arrived to tell his father, that he was coming. And he told him about his exalted calling. And then, in 18 to 23, very quickly, his forewarned observers, this is amazing, Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? Oh my goodness. Oh, you didn't say it, Zechariah. Surely not. How will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Oh my word. Sounds like Sarai. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Okay, that's, that's very personal, very meticulous, very circumstantially laid out in detail. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I don't think that was a prepared speech. I think that was a spontaneous speech. And probably rehearsed by Gabriel anyway, because anyone who doesn't believe in their heart, he's got to say the same thing. I am who I am, then I'm sent to you, and I'm speaking directly to you, and this is good news. All the elements are there for, your, for you to believe it. Verse 20, and behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words. There's the forewarning. There's the forewarning to everyone. Believe it. Zechariah should have never said it, but any of you outside praying, when he comes out, if you don't believe it, be forewarned. He's mute. These will be fulfilled in their proper time. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. <laughs> and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I don't know, I don't know if he knew, knew sign language. Probably not. Which made it all the more shocking. They noticed... They realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. They'd never seen him like that. 
Godly man worshipping that many years, it was very obvious contrast. He'd seen a vision in the temple, no less, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. This was a fair warning. What does God have to do? Sends a forerunner, writes it down. What does he have to do? He sends Gabriel to speak directly. What does he have to do? He brings Luke along to give us, give us the account. The forerunner. An exalted calling and some forewarned observers. Say, so did it come true? Yeah, his promised conception happened. Verse 24. After these days... Verse 23, rather, when the days of his priestly service were ended he, ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, of course. She kept herself in seclusion for five months. And this is what she said. This was her constant expression. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. What was she talking about? That she could tell everyone, I'm finally not barren? That wasn't the issue. Why did she say, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor? The point wasn't that she was now with child. The point was that she was the one who was going to birth the forerunner who has that exalted calling. That's how the disgrace left her. Totally overwhelmed it. Completely far beyond... Just telling her friends, hey, I finally was able to have a child. No, she got to say, Zacharias was in the temple. Gabriel visited him, told him what he was supposed to know. He didn't believe it. He became mute until the baby was born. He was silent. We made sign language for months. And this is the way the Lord chose to deal with me when he looked with, me, with favor upon me. Well, we say with Elizabeth, he looked with favor upon all of us, didn't he? All of us. Because a forerunner's coming. That's the first announcement Gabriel was tasked with. Unbelievers are going to have a lot to answer for. It's so vivid, it's so clear, it's so specific. And as we go through the gospel, we'll find out this forerunner came. He came. He was born. And it's interesting that after his birth, it says in verse 80, the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public Appearance to Israel. Wow. How much does God have to do to get the attention of the unbeliever? Or what about you this morning? It's not a matter of just the forewarning to believe it. We already believe it. We are in Christ. What is rich here is the elements of the gospel. John the Baptist came with the same ministry of the gospel you and I have. To preach so as to elicit repentance. What is that? We preach Christ and Him crucified. And the only way that someone can be saved is by faith. So we do the same thing. We're like post-forerunners. We're carrying on the mission. 
we're after runners. And we want to elicit repentance. And then that's not just our ministry. Our ministry is to hold up the standard of the righteousness of Christ. That human righteousness is not enough. And so we preach to induce righteousness. We want people to come to Christ by faith that His righteousness will cover them and then His powerful Spirit will begin to transform them into a holy servant of Christ. And we want to see people prepared for the second coming of Christ. We want to see a people who have strong, robust faith so that when the Lord says, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Our answer is a resounding, by Your grace, yes. It's an extraordinary birth announcement. Gabriel has another task, and that's for next time. Father, thank You for this morning, for this incredible account given to us by the pen of Luke. And if he did get it from Mary, we are so thankful that she would have been alive perhaps at the time to tell him. And if he received it from others who knew Mary and received it from Mary like Philip and others, we're grateful that you chose to give it to us. And that you chose to immerse us in the details of the scene. And when we meet Zacharias and Elizabeth in heaven, we'll be able to talk about how we read of it in 2013 and we studied it. And he'll be able to tell us how he lived it in that moment. How rich is that? But Lord, more than anything, we want to be faithful to these same exalted tasks to preach repentance and to preach the righteousness of God in Christ and to see hearts softened and prepared for your glorious return. Lord, we believe it, but as Dan said earlier, help our unbelief. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.